watching all of the trashy daytime talk shows of the 90s. Remember those? Geraldo Rivera was the most famous for point of reference, but there was also Jerry Springer and Ricky Lake and Maury Povich and Montel Williams and Sally Jesse Raphael, and all began with Phil Donahue, if you remember who that was, and I watched all of those shows. And if you don't know what those shows are, what, what they are pretty much just a televised tabloid freak show that just puts on display the depravity of people's lives, just the chaos and wreckage of people's lives, just a really lot of messed up people make really stupid decisions who air their dirty laundry live before a studio audience. That's what these shows basically are. And you would not believe, I mean, it's, it's almost hard to believe that there are people like this who actually exist in the world. Without feeling superior to them, it's just shocking. But you see, one of the most popular segments that all these shows would have was a segment called the Daddy Reveal. <laughs> the Daddy Reveal. In other words, this is not incredibly edifying, but in the event that there was a possible illegitimate child in the mix, they would have the two possible fathers take a DNA test and they would reveal live before the audience, to the surprise of everybody, who the father of the child in question actually was. <laughs> And, and upon announcing who the father was, usually it would result in yelling and shrieking and laughing from the crowd and fistfights on the stage, and it was all pretty low-level trash, not fit for human consumption. You see, the point is, why I'm telling you all that is because a test to see who your father really is is exactly what John does in 1 John chapter 3. But you see, John is not some trashy talk show host, rather, he is a pastor, he is an apostle, he is a theologian, he is a shepherd, he is a spiritual geneticist, he's a doctor of the soul. And you have to understand, his entire agenda in chapter 3 is to reveal that there are only two possible spiritual fathers that someone could have, and that everyone in the world belongs to one of those two fathers. Either your father is God, to whom you belong by faith in Christ, or, wait for it, your father is the evil one to whom you are enslaved and by whom you are blinded. And there's no middle ground. Everyone in the world is a child of someone. And John makes it really clear. Either you are a child of God born again or a child of the devil dead in sin. And I realize that sounds harsh and over the top, but that's exactly what John says. And the reason why he does is because the situation transpiring at these churches over which he was responsible was just so urgent. You understand that there were teachers, and by that I mean false teachers, who infiltrated, who moved in and muddied the waters with a cheap grace kind of theology, which essentially claimed that you could have total assurance that your salvation was authentic, and yet you could live your life in total rebellion. You could love the world, live little different than the world, and yet have total assurance that your salvation was legitimate, that you could claim the light and walk in the darkness. And John gets wind of this garbage blowing through these churches, and in response to that, he writes a letter, this letter, in which he unfolds all the evidence of what it looks like when someone truly has eternal life. And his point is, salvation the work of God to save a soul is not, some, is not some benign placebo that may or may not have an effect. 
No, when God saves a soul, he makes them a son. A son or daughter of the living God. Born again children of God. And the thing about born again children of God is that they actually pursue holiness. They do. And don't misunderstand. They're far from perfect. And they've got their issues, but nevertheless, sons and daughters of God prove who their father is through transformed lives that put Jesus Christ on display. And you understand how important this letter is to us, even this, how, how important this chapter is to us in America. I mean, you realize that the American church as a whole has bought into a kind of mutilated Christianity in which one can love the world, and live exactly like the world, live little different than the world, but because they prayed a prayer one day that they were little, that they can have total assurance that their salvation is authentic, and that may not necessarily be the case. Because you understand children of God live different than children of the devil, not because they're inherently better people, but because when the Father saves a soul, he changes who they are from the inside out. And so this morning, John runs some tests. He's going to take a sample of our lives, a swab of our souls, and he's going to help us determine exactly who is the Father to whom we belong. And so here's where we're going. If you have your notes, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from this text three compelling reasons. Three compelling reasons why a life of sin is incompatible, impossible for a born-again child of God. That's where we're going. Three compelling reasons why a life of sin is incompatible, impossible for a born-again child of God. And the first compelling reason is this, number one, the sinister meaning of sin. The sinister meaning of sin. In other words, what sin is in its actual essence makes it impossible for someone who is truly saved to just live in disobedience at least for very long. But what you have to remember is, is the thing about chapter 3 is that the entire chapter was triggered into existence by a single phrase at the end of chapter 2, and it is the phrase, born from him. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. Notice what John says. He says, if you know that he is righteous, that is Christ, then you know, listen carefully, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born from him. And there's the phrase, born from him. That's the operative phrase that brought the entirety of chapter 3 into existence. And to be born from him means to be born from God. And to be born from God means that God intervened with a miracle and awakened our souls to the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. And had he not done that, we would have never believed and been saved. But you see, now John's job is to take an entire chapter and unfold the implications of what it looks like to be born again children of God. And what it looks like is in verses 2 and 3. Look what he says. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. You see it? And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. Here it is. And everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
Did you hear that? What did John say is the evidence of a born-again child of God? What does that actually look like in their lives? John says they purify themselves just as Christ is pure. In other words, born-again children of God, imperfectly, it may, however it may be, they pursue holiness. Born-again children of God live their lives on the edges of their seat, waiting anxiously for Jesus Christ to return. And as they do, John says, they purify their lives. That's exhibit A, evidence that someone has been born again by God. And I think if John were here this morning, he would ask you straight up, without hesitation, do you see any of that in your life? Do you see that in your life? I mean, imperfect though you are and struggle though you may, do you nevertheless see a consistent, urgent pursuit of purity in your lives as you await the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ? Because you understand that is the confirmation of our regeneration. But you see the opposite of that. In fact, the exact opposite of hope-filled children who purify their lives in light of Christ's return is exactly what John describes in verse 4. Look what he says. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. See what John's doing there? He's answering three questions that we should be asking, three questions that we have got to get to the bottom of. And the questions are, who, what, and why? Who, what, and why? The question is, who? Who who is John talking about here? When he describes someone who practices sin, who, who exactly does he have in mind? And John makes it exactly clear precisely who it is he's talking about. Who he's talking about here is an unbeliever, not a Christian. Someone who is spiritually dead and needs to be saved. And we know that because he all but says that in verses 7 and 8. Skip down, look what he says. And and notice very carefully the parallels in, in his wording. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Here it is. The one who practices sin, same exact language, is from the devil. See the parallel? Exact same language. You see, if the one who practices sin is of the devil, John says, that is under the power and sway of the evil one, then there's no way we're talking about a believer. There's no way. In fact, Christ uses this very same construction in John 8, 34, when he says everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. So it's clear, isn't it? The one who practices sin. This is not describing the normal everyday struggles of the Christian life. Rather, this is describing an unbeliever who is enslaved to their sin. That's who John's talking about. Which brings us to the what. What is John talking about here? What what is he talking about? And what he's talking about, get this, is the nature and essence of what sin really is. In other words, in verse 4, he defines, he defines what sin actually is. Because you understand, when we dig through the landfill of what sin really means, what we find at the bottom is far more wicked and heinous than we had ever first imagined. Because you realize we're pretty good at softening sin and calling it by other names and 
working out really clever ways where it's not actually that big of a deal, but trust me when I say that we don't give sin near enough credit. It is far more wicked than we have ever believed. You see, we have most of us yet to come to grips with how treacherous sin really is. And the reason is because we have yet to come to grips with the matchless supremacy of the living God. We have not yet learned to tremble before the towering majesty of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. And so therefore, Adam and Eve eating a piece of fruit, that doesn't really sound like that big of a deal. Homosexuality, it's not super serious. That's, that's why eternal hell, even for just committing one sin, sounds like an overreaction. But it's not. It's not an overreaction because sin at its root is nothing less than cosmic treason against the creator himself. And we see it in verse 4. Look very carefully at what John says. It says, everyone who practices sin, here it is, also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Do you see what John does there? He takes the broadest possible word for sin, namely sin, and then further defines exactly what it is by calling it lawlessness. That'd be a little bit like if you went to the dermatologist and they said, you know, the blemish on your skin, general, big picture word, is actually a melanoma, more precise. Or if a lawyer said to you, you know, the crime you just committed, general, big picture word, is actually a felony, more specific. And you have to understand that when we commit sin, we commit lawlessness. And literally, that word means without law. That is without God's law. In other words, sin at its root is a fist-shaking defiance of the sovereign authority of the living God. That's what it is. Sin at its root is a shoulder-shrugging nonchalance to the towering supremacy of God. That is what it is. And when John says at the end of verse 4, sin is lawlessness, he means sin is always lawlessness. It is always cosmic treason against the king, and it is never not that. And what that means is there's, there's no such thing as little sins. There's no such thing as a little compromise. Even what feels accidental and seems unintentional still qualifies as rebellion. Why? Because sin, all sin at its root, is an infinitely evil crime against an infinitely worthy God which deserves an infinite punishment because what sin is at its root is lawless rebellion against the sovereign majesty of God. And I know you didn't wake up hoping that you would be asked these kinds of questions this morning. But these kinds of things that John's talking about, this should really make us pause and ask ourselves, have we been toying with sin? Have we been tolerating sin? 
Have we been excusing sin, redefining sin, dabbling with sin? Have you loosened the grip on sin in your life? Have you been justifying little sins and compromises? Because in the scheme of eternity, they don't seem like that big of a deal. Because what John just did here is he tightened the belt on that kind of thinking, and he showed us, no, no matter how you slice it, sin is always treason. Every transgression a betrayal. Every iniquity is an insurrection. Every lie is rebellion. Lust is adultery. Anger is murder. Pride is blasphemy. Greed is idolatry. Fear is to call God a liar. There's no little sins. There's no respectable sins, there's no acceptable sins, there's no minor sins, there's no excusable sins. All it is, all of it is a mutiny against the matchless authority of God. And having said that, please, I beg you with all my heart, do not be discouraged. Please, I beg you, do not be discouraged this morning. Because yes, sin does have a power in our lives. But if you are in Christ, understand this, it is a crippled power. It is a feeble power. It is a flimsy power. And it is no match for the power supplied in and through Jesus Christ. Because you understand Christ is not just a Savior who merely gives forgiveness of sins in the past. But, but he is a savior who supplies the power you need to put sin and temptation to death in the present. And you see how you get access to that sin-crushing power? You know where this is going is through the means and instrument of the word, through the scriptures. There's not another way. There's not another way. The word of God, you understand, is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. And you must read it day after day after day after day. Let me just tell you, let me just tell you, if you rake the surface of the Bible, you will get leaves. But if you dig into the Bible, you will get diamonds. And when you read long and you go deep and you see those diamonds, over time your heart will begin to change. Which brings us finally to the why. why. Why is John getting in our kitchen about all this? Because, and the reason why is because this entire chapter, you, you understand this entire chapter exists to help us discern the difference between children of God and children of the devil. Because there is a difference. And the difference is, listen carefully, born again children of God cannot and will not persist in sin. They can't. They won't. I mean, we do, we do sin, unfortunately. But we don't persist in sin. We don't loiter in sin. Why? Because the nature of what sin is makes that absolutely impossible for them. Children born again by the Father cannot resist, cannot persist in rebellion against the Father. And here's the thing, if they do persist, if they just live in patterns of sin that they knowingly tolerate and justify, at the end of the day, John's point is, they're not actually a child of the Father. They're not actually born again. 
And so two questions to contemplate, two weighty questions to consider. Number one, are you born again? Are you absolutely sure that you are born again by the living God? Because yes, the battle with sin is bloody. And no, you don't always come out as the victor. But you see, but you, see you should still see some evidence in your life that at some time God intervened and made you born again. Because there should be evidence. And understand this, one of the greatest evidences that one has been born again is not that they never sin, but it's that they keep fighting and fighting their sin until the promised victory is given. In other words, battle-wearied warfare against sin is one of the greatest evidences that your salvation is authentic. Are you born again? Question number two. Is there anyone in your life with whom you need to have a loving but urgent conversation about the state of their souls? And I mean a, a person who, although they claim to be in Christ, they give no real indication that their claims are actually authentic. I mean, if you, I mean, have you had concerns about anyone in your life or in this church or in your family who, although they name the name of Christ for far too long, they have not revealed the kind of evidence that would give you any indication that their salvation is authentic because you understand being silent is not being gracious. We're just kind of hoping that they're going to be inspired to repentance because of your example alone is just not very realistic. No, people are brought to repentance through words. Example two, I mean, you need them both, don't get me wrong. But there has to be words. Truth, words. Bible, words. Loving, words words, urgent words, asking them to consider the most important question in the universe, which is, are you sure that God is your Father and that you belong to Jesus Christ? That question is the essence of love. Which brings us to the second reason. The second reason why sin is incompatible, impossible for a born-again child of God Number two, compelling reason number two, the saving mission of the Savior. The saving mission of the Savior. And you'll forgive the now second reference to a TV show here. I don't watch that much TV, I, I promise you. Um, but you, I'm sure you've heard of a show called Hoarders. Hoarders. And if you've seen it, it's a really sad and, and gut-wrenching show. I'm not recommending that you go home and watch it at all, especially not during lunch or anything, because it's pretty much unwatchable stuff. And the reason for that is because the people in the show are not just people who have some clutter in their lives, but these are people who live in absolute filth and squalor and who have decades and decades of garbage just piling up in their homes. And the thing that's really tragic about the show, about their lives, is that they, if you watch it, they don't actually want help in most cases. They, they love their filth and garbage, and they are unwilling to part with their filth and garbage. And yet, the pivotal moment of the show is, is when a person, a loving person, despite their resistance, enters into their terrible homes and removes the waste and garbage. And you see, the point is, that is exactly like the mission of Christ. We, we are the hoarders of sin and iniquity. 
And Christ appeared on the hovel of human history precisely to deal with the hoarding of sin that exists in every human heart. And despite our resistance, changes and transforms our lives. Look what John says in verse 5. He says, and you know that he appeared. Why? Why did he appear? To take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, do you see what John's doing here? He is supplying the most foundational reason why living and loitering in unrepentant sin is absolutely impossible for born-again children of God. It's the most foundational reason why. And you notice what he says. You, say, you notice he says, and he, you know that he appeared. You know this. You know this, church, that someone appeared on the scene of human history. And just even saying that out loud, we know who this is. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, God the Son, the Word made flesh, the radiance of the Father's glory, the God who is invisible, who became visible when he came to earth as a man. What this is is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the very mission of the Messiah himself. And yet the question is, what was the mission of the Messiah? What did God come to earth as a man to do? And it's not top secret. John says exactly what it is. Look at what he says, verse 5. You see it there, and it's startling. Jesus Christ appeared on the earth with the glorious mission to take away sins. To remove them out of existence. To work in such a way so as to remove, to, to enter into the squalor of a filthy planet and work in such a way so as to remove even the trace that this thing called sin ever even existed in the first place. Isn't that what John just said? Look at his language. He appeared to take away sins. And notice, sins, plural. Sins, plural. Not just sin in general, but plural, sins. That language is highly significant. Do you know why? Because it indicates that Christ came not just to obliterate sin in a general way or a partial way, but get this, the mission of the Messiah was to remove even the possibility of sinning ever again. That's what John just said. That the mission of the Messiah was not merely to help people turn over a new leaf, or, or to help them become better versions of themselves. But that he came to the planet to create a new humanity who would never sin or rebel again. That's what John just said. And even just saying that out loud, we think, okay, well, that sounds great. That sounds fantastic. But the question, the thing that rises in our minds that we're all thinking is, that's great. But the problem is, we still sin. Although truly saved and really forgiven and no longer slaves of sin, we do still sadly sin. There is still something deep within us that is yet unredeemed. There is a power that wages war in our souls. And so what that means is, what that means is either one of two possibilities. Either the mission of Christ was a total failure or, or the mission of Christ to remove sin completely unfolds in stages. 
That's exactly what it does. In fact, you could say that Christ's mission to take away sins unfolds in four stages. Four stages that will culminate eventually in the removal of all sin entirely out of existence. And here are the stages. They're actually in your notes. Stage one is propitiation. Stage two is regeneration. Stage three is sanctification. And stage four is glorification. Those are the stages, or better, the achievements of Christ by which he completes his mission to obliterate sin, the, even the ability to sin, out of existence. And if you belong to him, understand this, if you belong to Christ, you have and you will experience all of those things. It's incredible, incredible hope here. So first, stage one, propitiation. Propitiation, what is that? You remember what it is. First John 2, verse 2. The sin bearing death of Jesus Christ that removed the infinite anger of God for those who belong to him. And that happened 2,000 years ago. So therefore, if you belong to Christ, stage one is done. But stage two is regeneration, which is that sovereign miracle when God awakened your soul to have eyes of faith and eyes to see Christ for the treasure that he is. And if you know Christ, this has already happened to you. Stages one and two complete. But stage three is sanctification. And you know sanctification because why? You're already in it. Even now, even as we speak, it is the warfare against sin that you're in even at this very moment. It is the painful carving of our lives into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in that stage, and yet stage four is glorification. And you know exactly what that is. At the end of the age, Christ will return. And he will give us new, sinless, glorified, resurrected bodies never to sin and never to die again. Those are the stages of redemption by which Christ removes sin completely out of existence. And so, and so think, think about these stages just for a moment because each one of them accomplishes something different. Stage one, propitiation, what does that do? That removes the consequence of sin. There's no more wrath left to bear if you are in Christ. Stage two, regeneration, what does that do? It destroys the dominance of sin. If you are regenerated, you are awakened, and you are no longer a slave to sin. But stage three, sanctification, what does that do? It overcomes the influence of sin. You have power through the word, by the spirit, to overcome sin and temptation in your lives. And stage four, glorification, what does that do? That will abolish the existence of sin forever and ever and ever. See, all of that, all of that is what John implies, what he means when he says that he appeared to take away sins. The question is, what does any of that have to do with his agenda of showing the difference between children of God and children of the evil one? What does that have to do with it? It has everything to do with it. Why? Because John's point is the very mission of the Messiah, listen carefully, to take away sins makes it impossible for children of God to live and loiter in sin. They can't do it. They won't do it. At least not for very long. 
And the reason for that is because although the mission of Christ is not yet completed, although we still do wage war against sin in our souls, nevertheless, those attached by faith to Christ have been freed from the bondage and tyranny of sin. Don't you see, when God saves a soul, he supplies every resource in his son to renovate their lives. Think about what you have this morning. In Christ, you are born again. In Christ, you're a new creation. In Christ, you have redemption. In Christ, you have access to all the surpassing pleasure that triumphs over the passing pleasures of sin, which means real, permanent, lasting victory over sin is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. But what that also means on the flip side, what that also means is that those who live in guilt-free indifference to the word of Christ, no matter what it is they claim, they have zero assurance that their salvation is authentic. That they're probably not born again and they need to be saved. That's John's point. And you understand, don't you, John's goal in being so blunt and forthright I mean, the goal is not necessarily to make you unnecessarily fearful and introspective, but rather his goal, his goal is clarity and love. And those are one and the same. It is loving to be so clear with who is and who is not a child of God. It is love to be clear and precise with what salvation actually looks like in somebody's life. In America, for far too long, we have tolerated a truncated gospel, a toothless gospel, one that's been stripped down to such palatable, man-centered, feelings-based, felt needs that we forget that the gospel is a summons to repent. Because you understand this is not a savior who leaves people unchanged. This is not a Savior who leaves people as they are. This is the Savior who is God, who became man to save sinners from the inside out. The gospel, you understand, is a gospel about a Savior who saves and forgives and who cleanses. This is a Savior and King who challenges us and who changes us and who convicts us and who converts us and who is coming again to reign over us. Bottom line, the gospel is a call to stop drinking from the mud puddles of sin and to drink your fill from the fountain of living waters. The question is, have you believed this gospel? Does this gospel that calls for repentance and submission to the king have you yielded to Jesus Christ as Lord and King and Savior and treasure? Have you done so? Are you sure that you have done so? Have you understood that when he appeared, he came with a mission to make a new humanity? And that he saves them from the inside out? Because if you have not done so on the authority of Christ, I ask you, plead with you to yield in thirsty submission to the King. 
because he really changes people's lives. He does. He makes it impossible for born-again children of God to live and loiter in sin. And one of the reasons why he makes that impossible is because he himself is sinless. Look at verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. And you know that he appeared. Why? To take away sins. And here it is. And in him there is no sin. (laughs) He never sinned. He never sinned. Not once. Not ever. I mean, not, not, even, not even the least trace, not even, not even in the smallest fraction of the term, not as a teething baby, the terrible twos, the tweens, the teens, the roaring twenties, never once did he yield to temptation and sin. And you know why that matters, don't you? You know exactly why that matters. It matters because first, if Christ himself was not sinless, he could not accomplish the mission of destroying sin. If Christ himself were a sinner, he could not deliver and save from sin since he himself would need a deliverer and a savior. That's why this matters. But the second reason why this matters is because the sinlessness of Christ, get this now, guarantees that those who belong to him will gradually more and more become like him. That's why. Don't you see the sinless glory of Jesus Christ? It makes it absolutely impossible for those who belong to him to live and loiter in sin. Because you understand the same Christ that saves us is the same Christ that sanctifies us. The same power that rescued us is the very same power that renovates our lives and transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And however pitifully short we may fall, and trust me when I say we all fall pitifully short, that if we belong to Christ, that gradually over time more and more we will resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I love about this is that what this makes, this makes our purpose and aim and mission and goal for our lives. Shockingly simple, doesn't it? It really does. Our aim and objective and mission and goal and purpose in this life is not to become better citizens, ultimately, nor even become better versions of ourselves. No, no. The goal for our lives is to become less and less like ourselves and more and more like Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that that's the Father's will? That his design and desire, his passion, God has a passion for your life and it is to be transformed into the image of his son that I would be less and less like Jared Gilcher and more and more like Jesus Christ? Over and above all the other goals and purposes and and aims that I have for my life, becoming like Jesus Christ surpasses and supersedes all of them. And this sounds great. This sounds really, really great. This sounds fantastic, doesn't it? And yet the question is, how do we become like Christ? I mean, how does this actually happen in our lives? Does it just kind of sort of happen without us thinking about it? Or, or... Has God provided a way? Has he provided a way for us 
to be transformed into the image of his son. And that's exactly what he's done. You know what it is? Here it is. Listen carefully. We become like Jesus Christ as we behold his beauty in the word. That's it. That's the answer. We will begin to resemble whatever it is that we love the most. To become like Jesus Christ, we must be captivated by Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 could not be more clear and unmistakable. To see Christ is to become like Christ, which means, which means all Christ-likeness in our lives is produced by glorious visions of who he is from the pages of Scripture. But you see, we will only be as Christian as our view of Christ is profound. And so what we must do every single day of our lives, not out of any sense of guilt or mere duty, but we must ransack the word of God in long, long meditation upon who Jesus Christ is. Because you realize the more glory we see of who Christ is, the more our lives will begin to resemble him. And so the question is, in what ways, it's a loaded question, in what ways are you a little too much like yourself and not enough like Christ? In what ways would you love, love to see your life transformed more and more into the image of Christ? Because you understand the more we depend on him and the more we delight in him, the more we will display him in our lives. And that brings us to the third reason. Third reason why a life of sin is incompatible, impossible for those who are children of God, born again. And the reason is this, number three, the spiritual marrow of saving faith. The spiritual marrow of saving faith. And by that, I simply mean that the spiritual power, get this now, the spiritual power of what faith in Christ actually is makes it impossible to live like we did when we were children of the devil. Because you realize that the way we have reduced faith, simplified faith, stripped faith down to its most bare essentials has really done us zero favors today. Because faith in Christ, you understand, this, this isn't just believing in something that you can't see. I mean, there's part of that that's true, but that's not completely true. Faith is not just the affirmation of a few historical facts. I mean, there are historical facts, and you've got to believe them, but that's not the whole truth. Because you see, the whole truth is that faith, real, authentic, biblical faith, is to be so utterly connected to Jesus Christ that his power is displayed in and through your lives. Look what John says in verse 6. He says, everyone who abides in him does not sin. And everyone who sins has not seen him, nor has known him. And there it is again, that apostolic bluntness. <laughs> now, there's no beating around the bush with the Apostle John, because how could there be when we're dealing with matters of such eternal importance? And again, don't forget what John is doing here. John is supplying the third reason why guilt-free rebellion is absolutely impossible for born-again children of God. That's what he's doing. 
And, and notice that John does what he loves to do, which is take, to take the entire human race, split it right down the middle, divide it up into two groups, and, and essentially say that there are two and only two kinds of people who live in the world. Who are they? Look what he says. Look at verse 6. There are people who abide in Christ, and they don't sin. <laughs> and then there are people who sin, and they've never known Christ. They've never seen Christ. Those are the two groups of people. And you see what this is, or in very stark and strong and dramatic and weighty terms, what this is are believers and unbelievers. Or, as is the point of chapter 3, there are children of God born again, and there are children of the devil dead in sin. And there's no middle ground. And, and notice how John describes believers. Notice what he says. He says, everyone who abides in him does not sin. That's a shocking statement. And John has dozens of shocking statements exactly like that. And, and what that means, there are three issues that we've really got to get to the bottom here. Number one, who's the him? Two, what does it mean to abide in him? And three, what does it mean that those who abide in him do not sin? Those are three questions we've got to get. The, the him is easy. The him is super easy. Who is the last person that John just talked about? Verse 5, the one who has no sin, the one who came to the earth to take away sin. So clearly this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But question two, what does it mean to abide in him? And John loves that word abide. 24 times in five chapters he uses that word because it is a perfect word to describe the Christian life. And you understand that the origins of that word are profoundly agricultural. It describes that organic connection that branches have to the trees to which they are connected. That word portrays that life-giving botanical process as branches are helplessly dependent upon the tree for everything they need to yield their fruit. That is exactly what it means to have faith in Christ. It's exactly what he's talking about. It's a graphic description of what faith in Christ really is. Because you understand faith. Faith is not some one-time confession long ago of what you actually believe and the rest of your life is just sort of kind of lived in independence on your own. No, no. No, faith is an organic, supernatural connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, get this now, faith is a spiritual union with Christ whereby his life is so inseparably intertwined with our own that he lives his own life in and through us. This is not a cross your fingers. I hope this is true. Lunge into the darkness. No, faith, faith is supernatural attachment to Jesus Christ where his love and life-changing power is channeled into our lives. And what you cannot miss here, here's some application here, what you absolutely cannot miss here is that just as every appliance in your kitchen needs a cord plugged into the outlet to get the power, so the appliance of faith needs the cord of the word to get access to the power of Christ. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, faith 
only works the way it should when it is attached to an object. And that object is faith in Christ through His Word. So what this looks like is, as we go throughout our day, we recite the truth, we reflect on the truth, we talk about the truth, we mutter the truth under our breath as we go throughout our day and we make it our prayer and that is the means, that is the mechanism, that is the way that Christ provides the power to do what he commands. And people wonder, don't they, why God feels so distant? People wonder why their hearts feel so cold? Why sin always has the upper hand? Why they never seem to change? Why they have no joy or happiness? Why they stay in a funk and they never seem to grow? And I sympathize with all those because I've been there. But the answer to every single one of those predicaments is always, always, always found in the fact that faith only works the way it should when it is connected to an object. And it is Christ in and through his word. Because it's like the girl who told me a couple years ago complained to me that God felt distant and cold. To which I replied, well, that, if that's true, then it was you who took the first step away. Because Christ is always present. He's always present in his word, ready to meet you, ready to minister to you, ready to provide for you, ready to encourage you, ready to give you hope, ready to supply the power you need, ready to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul and transform your life in ways you never even believed were possible, which means this right here, this has got to be a part of the equation. It has just got to be. This is not some optional accessory to the Christian life. No, it is the cord that connects us to the power of Jesus Christ. And you would think, you would think that that kind of faith supernatural, organic union to Christ, you would think that that would produce some pretty remarkable changes in our lives and be exactly right because that's precisely what John says. Look again what he says in verse 6. He says, everyone who abides in him, get this now, does not sin. <laughs> Question three, meaning what? Well, what does he mean by that? Not that we never sin ever, because the same apostle who said this said in chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us. So clearly John doesn't mean sinless, but what he does mean is that someone with authentic faith, they're not ruled by sin. They're not a slave to sin. They're not dominated by sin. They're not controlled by sin. They do not live in willful, ongoing patterns of sin that they knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. They, they don't live in nonchalant disregard of the word of Christ. They do sin, but they don't persist in sin. And I think if, I think if, the, if the elderly apostle, if he were the one here preaching to you today, I don't think he would hesitate to ask you, even for a second, if he would ask you, do you, do you have this kind of faith? Do you have this scripture-saturated 
faith in Christ? Or, or do you have willful, ongoing patterns of sin that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify? Because the reality is, you don't have to stay that way. It, it's never too late to change. You are never painted into a corner, even by your own sinful desires. You're not, if you're in Christ. See, if you belong to Christ, you can totally have, it is literally there for the taking access to the kind of power that transforms your life, that puts Jesus Christ on display. Because you know what? That's what the world and the culture needs more than ever from us. More than ever from us. What the world needs is your own personal holiness. As things get darker and dim, this is our opportunity to show and tell the world that Jesus Christ radically changes people's lives. Remember what we say about Sunday morning, this is the huddle, that is the game. And so again, I ask you, do you have this kind of faith? Because if you don't feel like you do, or you want to grow in it better, and, and you want to know more about how to do that, Charles and Vicki Smith will be waiting right over here at the end of this stage, and they're, they're going to be there right after the service to talk with you and meet with you and counsel you and pray with you and, and do whatever they can to serve you and help you have that kind of faith. I encourage you, if, 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 you, if that's something you need, don't hesitate to talk. We want to minister to you today. But as I said, John describes two kinds of people here. Believers and unbelievers, and I'm almost done. They're children of God, born again, children of the devil, dead in sin. And notice, notice how he describes the unbelievers at the end of verse 6. Look what he says. Everyone who abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or knows him. What John does is so interesting. Do you see what he, do you notice what he did there? He took what he literally just said and he pulled it inside out and he inverted it and he said the exact opposite. It's so clever. So he says, those who abide in Christ do not sin. They're not slaves under the power and dominion of sin. Those who sin, that is, slaves under the power and dominion of sin, they make it clear that they don't have authentic faith in Christ. Or as John says here, they, they have never seen him, they have never known him. You see, his point is, if someone can live in lawlessness, in comfy disregard of the sovereign authority of God, then John says, they've never seen him. They've never seen him. Their eyes clearly have never been opened to the imponderable majesty of Jesus Christ. For how can you behold the beauty of a sunset and then go and feast your eyes on a dirty diaper in a parking lot? And those who live and loiter in sin, John says, they've never known Christ. They've never known him. How could they? How could they know the one who is the bread of life, who satisfies the soul, and then scour the landfill looking for dirty scraps? They don't know him. You see, true faith sees and knows the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, and that makes living and loitering and persisting in sin absolutely impossible. So I close with this. Everyone in the world has a spiritual father. You've got one and I've got one. And there are but two spiritual fathers that one can have. 
Either one belongs to God by faith in Christ or one belongs to the evil one by whom they are and to whom they are enslaved and by whom they are blinded and there is no middle ground. And yet John has really helped us this morning. He has helped us by giving us tests to see what father it is to whom we belong. And I, I hope and I pray that you know who your father is. And that if God the Father is not your father, that you would repent and, and yield to his son whom the father sent for one great ultimate design, which was, believe it or not, to make a family a family of souls from every nation who for all eternity will share in the joy of their Father and who forever declare with awestruck wonder and delight how great is the Father's love for us that we, of all people, we would be called children. Well, Lord, this was not necessarily the text we asked for, but this is the text we needed. And Lord, we're grateful for the Apostle John's forthrightness and honesty, which means, Lord, what we're really thankful for is your forthrightness and honesty. And Lord, I pray that we would view this text rightly, that it would by no means discourage us, but it would heighten our passion, heighten our zeal, empower us, strengthen us, move us to repentance, that this text would produce in us exactly what it was designed to produce in its original readers and hearers. And Christ, over and above it all, I pray that we would see and savor and enjoy and be supremely satisfied in your excellencies, in your beauty, in your majesty, in your imponderable majesty, and that that would be the, the chief power, the chief engine that drives us to resemble and reflect you in our lives. We, we are a people who struggle, Lord, at every turn. We struggled this morning when we got up. We're struggling even now. When church is over, we will struggle. When we go home, we will struggle. It's not only a struggle, but we do struggle. And you are patient, and you are gracious, and you love us, and you have supplied all we need in your word to help us reflect and resemble who you are. Help us to do that, Lord, always and only for your glory.